This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, uh, it's great to be here. Um, very unusual for me to be speaking without giving everyone a handout, but kind of the handout really is the book. Um, so I, what I want to do just in the next uh, few moments is just to outline some of the themes of the book, where it's coming from. The, the book is, a, I suppose, meant to be a, a wake-up call, a, a, a cri de coeur, a cry from the heart, that I think as I go around and I'm speaking at various places, I think many Christians, I think all of us, maybe in this room, we are, in the words of that song, uh, bewitched, bothered and bewildered by what we see around us in our discipleship and in our evangelism. We want to talk about Jesus. And yet we realise so often that we're kind of talking past people or we're talking at them. Very rarely are we talking to them. And increasingly, we find it very difficult to connect, to get purchase or hold. People are just don't seem interested. We like it actually when they reject formally or openly the Christian faith, but we don't even get that. People just aren't being kind of, there's no, um, there's no traction. Uh, the frame, there's almost a force field around people and we kind of ping these stones. and They just kind of ping off all the time. People are just living their lives, playing their games, doing their stuff. And so uh, we find our evangelism hard. We also find our own discipleship hard, our own uh, following the Lord hard. We are fragile. We are under pressure. Many of us feel that we're in a kind of a bubble that could pop at any moment. And our reactions often are to either kind of just... Uh, let's say stuff it, we're just going to look like the rest of the world, we're not going to be countercultural, or we look in in a kind of holy huddle, or we lash out at a kind of a world that we used to have. I'm not sure we ever did have it, but that's the reaction. Now, I want to argue that in this contested and contestable world, uh, the Lord does not want what I'm going to call grumpy old men and women. There was a programme a few years ago called Grumpy Old Men and Grumpy Old Women, which was basically celebrity talking heads moaning as to how Britain used to be so much better. Dogs were better. Kids were better. Pavements were better. Just, uh, I am going to have to say, we are going to have to say some more kind of countercultural negative things about the world. But let's just remember Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to talk about such things. What God does want, what the Lord Jesus Christ wants, is men and women of Issachar. Do you remember that passage in 1 Chronicles 12 where David is calling the tribes to him and there's tribes with great military might and then there are the men of Issachar. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They were the eyes of Israel. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, comments on that particular passage. The men of Issachar were the fewest of all, only 200, and yet as serviceable to David's interest as those that brought in the greatest numbers, these few being in effect the whole tribe. They were weather-wise. They understood public events, the temper of the nation, and the tendencies of the present events. A few years ago, there was a book published by two authors, Mayo and Nora, called In Their Time, The Greatest Business Leaders of the 20th Century. And they interviewed a thousand successful business leaders. 
And the one common denominator amongst all these great leaders, regardless of age or industry, is what they called contextual intelligence. They possessed acute sensitivity to the social, political, technological, and demographic context that came to define their era. This was the underappreciated but all-encompassing differentiator, contextual intelligence. What Plugged In is about is trying to give us the tools to have theological contextual intelligence. Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because they know the weather patterns and yet they do not know the signs of the times. And so what Plugged In is about is giving you, I suppose, a new pair of glasses. Now, those of you who know when you get a new pair of glasses, it's a really traumatic occasion. It is for me anyway. My wife, who doesn't wear glasses, she can never understand why I'm so agitated or why it's such a big thing. But you know when you get a pair of glasses, it's a huge thing. And when you get a new pair of glasses, for the first few days, what's the only thing that you can see in your periphery? The frames. After a while, your eyes get used to it and you see through the glasses. Now, why am I saying this? Is because the spectacles that I want to give you and the tools that are in plugged in are a little bit artificial. Imagine that the, the, the glasses that I'm giving you are a way of viewing the world. We don't often think about our worldview because we think with our worldview. So there's something slightly artificial about having to go behind the scenes to think about how culture works. And of course, I always make the point that there is not a kind of a parallel universe where a group of non-Christians are meeting together tonight in a kind of, to have a non-Christian version of a book called Plugged In. People are just living their lives. It's only weird people like Christians who think about what worldview looks like. But that's what we're doing. And of course, we know as, as an evangelical Christian that our method is that we are to interpret the world through the word, not the other way around. The other way around is liberalism. But we interpret the world through the word. We live by faith, not by sight. And yet we've been given these glasses to see. Psalm 36, 9 says, in your light do we see light. And it's important not only that we think about what the Bible says, but we learn what are the patterns that Scripture gives us to enable us to answer some of the most critical questions that our culture faces at the moment. We learn the patterns and the tools about how God has created the world. As one writer, Christopher Watkins, says in a brilliant book called Thinking Through Creation, he says this, If Christians do not articulate how the Bible explains other stories in terms of its own story and how it provides a positive vision for society, then other stories will step in to explain the Bible in their own terms and provide that vision in its place. There is no neutrality. We all see the world in a particular way. And we live the world in a particular way. And it's, you are either being formed by the Bible or you are being deformed by another way of viewing the world. There is no other way to live. And so what Plugged In is, especially in the first half of the book, is trying to lay out what you might call, in theological terms, a theological anthropology. To say that whatever we see 
our non-Christian friend or ourselves who we think, what on earth has this got to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? The book is trying to say everything has got to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all an opportunity to uh, confront and connect with the gospel. Now, the way I want to do that in the short amount of time we've got here is actually an illustration not in the book. It's been kind of since, uh, since writing the book. And I want to imagine this big, this big um, as we look through the Bible at the world around us, that we are involved in, I would argue, human beings are involved in a cosmic game of hide and seek. All of you will be familiar, I hope, with the, with the hide and seek. We have some Americans, hide and seek. Is that, is that what you call it? Yeah, good, okay. Great. So I want to make this in a few statements, which gives us kind of this theological anthropology in terms of hide and seek. Firstly, this. God is not hiding. Contrary to popular opinion, it's interesting all the space stuff this week, Yuri Gagarin went up into space, came back down and said, I've been up there, no one there. And many people think that God is hiding. In fact, he's found such a great place to hide, actually, he doesn't exist at all. But God is not hiding. Romans 1, chapter, uh, one uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made so that people are without excuse. God is not hiding. God has revealed himself. He's manifested himself in everything that he has made. Two points to note here. The first is that all human beings are made to relate. We are made to relate to God, we're made to relate to each other, and, and to our world. The question is, what kind of relationship have we got? But all human beings are made to worship not just a generic deity, but the triune God of the Bible. They are made to love him because he created us. He is worthy of all praise. He is a good God. And so God has revealed himself. It's interesting, and again, this is kind of moving on to actually, hopefully some material I'm going to develop, which is kind of a sequel to Plugged In. What has God revealed here? His eternal power and his divine nature. Why are those terms used by Paul? The sense of eternal power is, I think, the idea that human beings, we know at some level that we are dependents. We are dependent upon, as God has revealed him, but that we are dependent. And his divine nature is that God is not um, simply an it, but a person, someone to whom we are accountable. So dependence and accountability are the things that God has manifest himself to all creation at all times. So we're made to relate. And again, I want you to take encouragement. That person who you think has got absolutely no time for you talking about Jesus or Christianity, they are made in God's image. They, are, they have been made to relate to him. Secondly, not only are we made to relate, we're made to cultivate the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28. And Plugged In talks about the ways we understand what culture is. God has given a unique task to his image bearers to have dominion, to fill and subdue the earth, to make a home for ourselves. And culture are the stories that we, that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we think our home is like. The materials that we are creating from are not dumb or inert because God's DNA, God's fingerprints are there. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
So God is not hiding. Second, we are hiding. The first question that God asks after Adam and Eve have decided to go with Satan's interpretation of reality, they hide. God says, where are you? Now, I believe God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows where they are. It's a moral question. Where are you? God has manifest himself. He's made himself clear so that everyone is without excuse. And yet we are hiding. There's a relational breakdown. We become cultural rebels. We still create, we still make a home for ourselves, but under a new boss and for different rules. As Jonathan Lehman says, the public square is a battleground of the gods and people will always fight for their idols and gods, their objects of worship. We are worshipping beings. If we're not worshipping the living God, we're worshipping something or someone else. But God doesn't stop revealing. Now, we don't have time now, but in the book, I go into quite a big dynamic about how that works in that God, in Romans 1, he's revealing his wrath and his grace at the same time. And that revelation demands a response. But what do we do? Well, Romans 1 makes it clear. We suppress the truth. The image there is of of someone holding someone else's head under the water. That's the image to be used. We, We suppress the truth. The revelation of God's righteous anger on the world should lead us to repentance, but it often doesn't. The revelation of God's grace should lead us to dependent thanks, but we turn it in a different direction. And so in the book I describe in different ways There's a kind of a divine human dance going on all the time. God is constantly revealing himself. The wrath of God is being revealed and we are constantly suppressing the truth. And the illustrations I give, uh, I give at least three here. Uh, When you go on holiday and you're in the sea and you have a game that you play, don't admit that you don't do it, with a beach ball. The idea is, is you try and sit on the beach ball in the sea. What happens to the beach ball? Pops up and then you try again. God is revealing himself and we in our sins suppress the truth, but because it cannot ever be totally suppressed, it pops up again. Or that that relationship is a bit like one of those uh, joke birthday candles that you blow out and in five seconds it comes back up again. All human beings have that birthday candle. They have that pilot light on in them. And we try all kinds of different ways to snuff it out or semtex it out or blow it out or whatever. But we can never extinguish it because that is who we are. We are made in God's image. We can never get away from that. However corrupt and depraved and sinful or how much we suppress the truth, we are still image bearers. And that flickering always will be seen somewhere. And that's a great encouragement to us. Finally, I want to suggest that what we do with culture, if, if, if the world already has in it the message that God, uh, uh, God is telling us something has gone wrong with the world, or the message that God is a great, good God and we should be worshipping him, creation already has messages in it. And our job should be to amplify those messages. But what we do is we take a big, fat, black marker pen and we write our own messages over it. I talk about in the book, 
the supreme instance of God telling us that something is not right with the world is human death. Human death, if you read Psalm 90, it's a great interpretation. Death means something. It means we are not like God. We can't be like him. It means that something has gone wrong. How does our culture interpret death? It gets its own marker pen out and graffitis over it and said death is just a smooth transition. It's about Uncle Albert in the next room. Actually, we're not even going to talk about death at all. It's ignorance in that sense or putting our fingers in our ears. So what culture is, God is revealing himself and culture is our own interpretations. And do we amplify those interpretations or do we muffle them? That's why, for example, I always think, and we were praying just now, why a Christian funeral is such an amazing witness to the reality of the world. On the one hand, we are realistic that we are living in a world that is perishing. It's under curse. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Death is horrible. It's tragic. And yet, as Christians, while we grieve, we still hope. And a Christian funeral is such an amazing thing because you have those two things together in a way that only the Christian worldview can combine. Sadness and hope at the same time. What we find in many, especially people who don't profess any faith, you either have complete nihilism when someone close dies, it's pointless, it's terrible, or you have just a terrible, the unreality of it all. So we suppress the truth, we repress it, but as Romans 1 also says, we substitute it. We substitute the gap in our suppression with other things. And that's where the whole concept of idolatry comes in, and I try and expand this in the book. Idols are found at the level of ultimates, ultimate explanations, ultimate authorities, ultimate commitments, ultimate love seen in the lives that we live and the homes that we make, our hopes, fears, desires, the scripts we follow, the liturgies and rituals that deform us all the time, that grip our heart and captivate us. As uh, uh, Jamie Smith writes, our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or what we love as ultimate. And that is religious. Idolatry is simply taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Something that God has made and inflating it to be a God, God substitute. And it cannot do that properly. And so there's all kinds of compatibility problems at that point. So that's just something. That's a, a little bit of a, an overview of a, that kind of that understanding of how this theological anthropology works. God is not hiding. He has revealed himself. We are hiding. And here's the thing. While all this is going on, your average person in the UK is like that um, idolater in uh, Isaiah 44, where Isaiah says, here's the craziness of the situation. They're going to make their supper and they're going to then build an idol from what's left over. It's ridiculous. And what does Isaiah say about that particular person? No one stops to think. And isn't that true about the lives that are going on all around us? No one stops to think. People are just living their lives. And yet we know in Jeremiah's terms, uh, talking about the people of Israel, how much those outside of the covenant people, uh, my people have done two things. They've turned from the fount of living water and they've turned to cracks, pots or cisterns that cannot hold water. 
The people that we love, the people that do not know Jesus, are people who are on their hands and knees, licking up stagnant water. And we want to show them this amazing fount of living water. And that's what Plugged In is trying to do. How do, we, how do we actually do that? So let's recap for a minute. God is not hiding. We are hiding. But it means that there's this messy mix that all people go, um, non-Christians both know and don't know God at the same time. They know God. That's what Romans says. They know. And yet they're in ignorance at the same time. And one of the chapters of the book is, is um, completely devoted to Acts 17, where I think Paul really gets this. And I don't want to kind of give away everything I say about Acts 17 in the book. But it, the, Acts 17 is bookended by two things. Millions of been words have been spent on Acts 17. Is it Paul being very kind of touchy-feely, cuddly, culturally? Is it, what's he doing? Well, whatever Paul does when he stands up on the Areopagus and gives that sermon, the whole passage is bookended by two things. One, he's nearly been violently ill by idolatry. The city which is submerged in idolatry, and Paul has a paroxysm, literally a violent revulsion to it. And at the end of Acts 17, he calls people to repent. So whatever kind of cultural kind of stuff he does in the middle, idolatry and repentance bookend that passage. But in the middle, Paul confronts and connects. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. And the word he uses there is a word that only appears once. And it could mean, men of Athens, I see that you're very superstitious. He's kind of taking the mick. Or it could mean, men of Athens, I see you're very religious. It could be affirming. I think both senses are meant. Paul is dealing a double blow. People cannot eradicate a religious impulse inside of themselves. However much we try and snuff it out, we cannot do it. And yet that good impulse, the fact that we've been made in God's image, has been degraded by rebellion. And that's why Paul says, what you believe in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. Paul is not saying, hey, you've got an unknown God. And is that's a bit like a sh uh, Jesus is like the smooth fulfillment of that. Jesus is saying, no, you're in ignorance, but I have to start somewhere in my preaching and preaching out from the unknown God. I'm going to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see also in that passage where, again, a good way to explain it is um, Paul, Paul says in Acts 17 that God has set boundaries so that people might reach out and find him and that our English translations aren't very helpful there because it gives the idea that people genuinely are looking for God. But actually the illustration, the word comes from the image of the cyclops who was blinded and is grasping. And that's what our unbelieving uh, f friends are doing. They're, 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 they're grasping, they're running to and running away from God at the same time. They're made in God's image and yet they're suppressing the truth. And if you say, well, that's a bit complicated, but th that's because people are complicated. Lives are messy. I mean, think about it. What does a suppressed truth mean? It doesn't, almost doesn't make sense. And yet that's what, how Romans 1 describes uh, what, what we do with the truth that God has given us. We suppress it, but we can never totally suppress it because we're God's image bearers. So at this point, here's the recognition. God has personally involved himself with everyone. And we live by faith, not by sight, because we know that our non-Christian friend who has no time for anything to do with Christianity or church or God or the Bible, however much we try, however much we try and gear change in an awful way into talking about Christianity, 
They're just not interested. We know they are interested because they're made in God's image. But we have to know where to look. Paul wanders around the Areopagus and says, as I looked at your objects of worship, and what Plugged In is trying to do at a very, not at a kind of arty-farty abstract level, but at the daily routines and things that people do in their lives, where does it show their objects of worship? And we see this in our culture. Um, as many writers have said, um, uh, Charles Taylor or uh, Jamie Smith or others, the secular is haunted. Julian Barnes, an author, wrote a book a few years ago called Nothing to be Scared of, and he starts the book by saying this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And as I think we continually, the, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ moves away from the artery of our culture, still, I still think that for all of your fries and Dawkins and Hitchens, many people are not satisfied with living in a kind of a, just a closed dome. And I'll come on to some examples at the moment where we see even the people who have got no time for what we would say, they are haunted by transcendence and they cannot but refer to it. And so Plugged In looks at giving a kind of a practical action plan as to how we might engage with such people. We enter into their worldview, we listen to their story, we search for elements of grace, we explore, we expose, we show up the idols, we show off the gospel. God is not hiding. We are hiding. And here's the amazing thing. God is not a great hider. Have you ever played um, hide and seek with a three-year-old? Uh, you tell them the rules and they go and hide. And as soon as you enter the room, they jump out. And you say, that's not the point of the game. You're meant to hide. But they cannot contain themselves. They're jumping out saying, here I am. God is not hiding. He has jumped out to say, here I am. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself God is himself God in his closest relationship to the Father has made him known. God is not hiding. We are hiding. God does not hide. But we know, don't we, in our own lives, that God is the best seeker ever. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When I was a bit older than three, maybe four or five, um, I played hide-and-seek with my mum and dad, and I couldn't understand why after three hours they were getting slightly concerned that they couldn't find me. And I'd hid right at the back of the sofa. And at that stage, they were so angry and terrified that I wasn't going to come out. So I just kind of sat there. And then I realised that my dad had stooped down, and he just saw the corner of my kind of sock and pulled me out. And that's a description of our lives, isn't it? Jesus Christ has come and he's saved us and all we are is trying to, uh, another one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Now with that anthropology, what does that mean for our engagement with culture? Well, in, uh, in, in Plugged In, I try to talk about that in, in this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians. And again, let me just give you a little summary of this. 1 Corinthians 1 has been become a really important um, passage in just... Even if you've kind of, even if you, you know, think when I mentioned the word anthropology, you kind of switched off and it, it, wake up again now and listen to this bit. It doesn't really, you know, all the other stuff. If you get this bit, it will be enough. 
The message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not unknow him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, if you've heard me speak on anything before, you've probably heard this and I apologise, but I do think this is very helpful. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross, including the Christian worldview, everything the Christian worldview says, is a message that confronts. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, is a big fat no to how the world thinks about things. I give the illustration in the book, and I always find it really helpful. I've only, I've only done one Radio 4 programme, I was never invited back. Uh, Ernie Ray, Beyond Belief. And because I've done some writing on hell in the past, they asked me, they asked a kind of a fundamentalist Christian to come and say something. And there was a, a, a lecturer at um, a, a, a university who believed in hell, but not in any kind of biblical sense. And they had a kind of a Catholic journalist as well. So we were talking about the concept of hell. And I said, you know, what I thought was a traditional biblical orthodox view of hell. They thought it, they were absolutely appalled. How can you believe in final judgment? I was saying, but judgment's a good thing. Judgment means that, you know, John Lennon was wrong. Above us, there isn't only sky. But they, they said, this is medieval. This is bloodthirsty. This is terrible. They were appalled at judgment. But you know what? They were even more appalled by the concept of grace. You mean that if someone on their deathbed confessed that Jesus is Lord, that they'd be forgiven? People are appalled by judgment and they're appalled by grace. That's the foolishness of the cross. Where wrath and mercy meet. So the gospel of Jesus Christ will always confront. And that's why we preach Christ crucified. And we preach it faithfully. But, and this is the big but, we have to preach it contextually as well. Why does Paul make a distinction here between two types of people? Jews and Greeks. Jews are looking for something called power or signs. They have a, a meta-narrative or a social imaginary, imaginary. Their hopes and dreams are stored up in the idea of, of signs and power. And then there are Greeks. They're not looking for signs and power. They're looking for wisdom. Now, surely if the gospel confronts, you might have thought Paul would say, who cares how to break down these different people? Who cares what the audience looks like? We just preach Christ crucified and we just say it very loudly <laughs> and shouty. But Paul makes the distinction. He says, we do preach Christ crucified. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Yeah, great confrontation. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, isn't this a felt needs gospel, Paul? You mean... Jews are looking for power, and now you're going to say Christ is power? You mean that Greeks are looking for wisdom, and you're going to say that Christ is wisdom? You see, Paul, Paul isn't um, 
worried about connecting with the deep hopes, dreams, desires, stories, cultures that these people are invested in. And they're different stories. It's the same Christ crucified. The gospel confronts, the gospel connects. That's exactly then what Paul is doing in Acts 17. He's confronting and connecting. So here is the question that Plugden is trying to deal with. The people who you love and live with in your own lives as well, what are the objects of worship? How do you connect and confront the gospel to those people? Not simply by saying Christ crucified very loudly, but by understanding, proclaiming Christ crucified in a way which both confronts and connects with the stories. And do you know what? That's quite hard work. And it'd be much easier for me to stand up and just say, I'm going to preach an abstracted Christ crucified gospel in six boxes. Other gospel evangel evangelistic um, surveys are available. But how do we do it in a very contextual way? How do we do it so that it meets those hopes, dreams, desires of other people? Paul is not afraid to do that. He does it in 1 Corinthians 1. He's very, that's how he definitely does it in Acts 17. So our job is this. And again, this isn't in the book. This is new. Imagine that picture I just had just now of a fount of living water and these cracked kind of pots. And what we're trying to do is pull people. Jesus is a magnet to pull people towards the beauty of the gospel but there are so many other magnets that are trying to pull people away as well. What we need to do is show, on the one hand, how the gospel is so appealing. But also we have to show that the idols that people worship are so appalling. I don't care if that's an annoying way of engaging with it. We need to show the gospel is more appealing and idols are more appalling. At the same time. And we need to do both. With all this talk of uh, space over the last week, um, you remember a few um, months ago they found, um, they found the, the, this black hole. Who can tell me, who, who from a scientific background can tell me the term for what would happen if a human being fell into a black hole? There's a particular name for it. Yes, spaghettification is the term. Now, I want to suggest... Yeah, exactly. Spaghettification. And now I want to suggest, in love, because we love people, we don't like what we don't like how other, how God's image bearers are worshiping other things, and Paul. That's why Paul is provoked. But we love God's image bearers. For me, evangelism and apologetics and cultural analysis, cultural analysis is a work of spaghettification. We want to show how beautiful Jesus is, how appealing the gospel is, and how appalling idolatry is, and we want people to kind of, kind of break at that point and realise that they cannot have both. And that is our job. And that's what Proverbs 26, 4-5 is. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, as I kind of uh, hurtle towards a conclusion, you'll be able to read all that in the, in the book, in probably in a much more accessible way. Uh, that's the job of having a good editor. Um, what I try to do in Plugged In is not simply do that analysis at a kind of a, a, a high-level kind of artistic way or even at a kind of a popular culture level. So the book isn't so much about 
engaging with film or painting or poetry, although it, it is all of those things, and those things are, they shape us so much, and we need to understand that. But everything that I've been saying is lived out in just normal, everyday things that people say and do. Remember, if we are not forming or being formed by God's word, we're being deformed by something else. And just in the last few weeks, even, I've been doing some teaching at Word Alive, where I'm trying to develop this a little bit more, as to these, um, what one writer calls these magnetic points that all human beings ask about who we are and where we've come from and where we're going and what's the relationship between destiny and fate and is there a transcendent? I just got some of my, my students, because I'm, I'm not very good at giving the examples. My students are brilliant at doing it. But what Plugged In is trying to do is saying, how do you relate to people at that level? And just a few like, examples to show you what I'm trying to do. So in, in, in Plugged In, at the end, we're looking at a few kind of popular texts. So we looked at uh, It's Coming Home, the song from last year, the football song. How, how does that... How, and you think, what on earth has the gospel got to do with that? Well, there's a whole load of stuff about hopes and dreams. And there's some also practical social stuff. When England lose, domestic violence goes up by about 30%. That's how important these things are. And we look at bird watching and zombies and Japanese toilets. That's what the end of the book is, Igor, I've given you, about some cultural analyses about how we do these things. But just think, as I give these examples, how would the gospel, how does the gospel connect to these very ordinary things? And again, these are just examples that some of my, my students have, have, have given me. This idea of not just being virtuous, but seen to be virtuous. It's very hard to rebel against the popular consensus when you want to feel good about yourself. I was in our local coffee shop the other day and a lady walked in pushing a buggy. As she walked up to the counter, she asked, are your straws paper or plastic? Fortunately, the owner said paper, at which the lady said, I'm so glad I can drink here. To be low plastic, vegan, socially aware is the new Phariseeism. It's driven by the need to feel good and worthy about oneself. Now, our relationship to the world, the environment, is absolutely crucial. But we know there's more going on there. What's, what's the need to be seen to be virtuous? What does virtue signalling come from? And how might the gospel connect and confront that? Here's a brilliant one. Um, again, very mundane things. Here's one about the whole question of identity. But I want to talk about it in terms of what one, uh, one of my students talked about, the work appraisal system. This is a very recent personal example I'm still trying to work through. Like many secular employers, we officially lord innovation and risk-taking and say that we want our employees to be free to be themselves, express themselves and work in ways that suit them. This is what we're told each week we are to aspire to. However, every year our appraisal system insists on evaluating each person on a static grid of numerical scores that makes no room for nuances in job description or personality. Everyone must work in exactly the same way in order to get a good score. The appraisal score then determines your pay for the next 12 months. The practical upshot is that we need to spend the whole year in a state of tension between following the rules of individualism and following the rules of the appraisal statistics. Now, what does that say about who we are as human beings? What's the relationship between individualism and collectivism? 
Here's another one that I've ended up writing a, a longer piece on for uh, Themelios, where I do a, a, a regular um, editorial. This was to talk about how that Bavinck, the guy who I'm, I'm influenced by, talks about these magnetic points, and one of them is called destiny. I've called it destiny. People live in this kind of tension between thinking that we lead our lives and we undergo our lives at the same time. It's the issue of fate. And even in the last 24 hours, as England won the World Cup, Within 20 minutes, three separate people had said it was written in the stars. Now, what does that I mean? If you push, what does that actually mean if you push that? So the example here was this. This was someone working in an office. You must never say the phones are quiet in the office. When I first started, I thought this was a bit of a joke, but it's considered deadly serious. You do not say that. I've been interested in trying to talk it out with some colleagues because they're clear that they have no belief in any sort of higher power and are perfectly rational people. At the same time, saying the phones are quiet will result in something or someone making said phones busy and unbearable. <laughs> we simultaneously have no control over how our phone shifts are going to go. You'll just have a day like that and are responsible for our own and others' bad shifts because you said it was quiet and that made it busy. One of the interesting things about this power behind phone calls is that it's clearly malevolent. There's no good power responsible for quiet shifts or pleasant customers, just bad ones. It's everywhere we look. One of the things I've been looking at is whether the whole idea that the West has become a, a kind of disenchanted there's a certain sense to that, but I think the world is as enchanted as it ever was. And it's, what I've done in this article is um, this, the, you can't say it's quiet. You realise, and those of you who might, might be working in medical uh, services or kind of emergency services, it is everywhere. I've got a policeman who, uh, who's at Oak Hill studying at the moment, and when I gave this illustration, he said it's true. Over the phone, on a shift, you must never use the word quiet. You have to use the word cue. It's cue tonight. If you say quiet... People will really take offence because they will think it's going to be busy. I found a Royal College of Surgeons bulletin, which I think is a spoof, but actually people have, have taken it seriously because they've referenced it, where they do a kind of a test on, we did a test to see whether saying quiet did make accident and emergency busier. And you think this is just a joke until other articles have then referenced it. This idea of superstition. When um, uh, Tottenham got to the Champions League final, there's an article on Mauricio Pochettino. You, you think about the millions of pounds in terms of sports psychology and the business. Maurizio Pochettino believes in this thing called universal energy. He has a bowl of lemons on his desk that when people come in who have a negative energy, it goes into the lemons. He changes the lemons every three to four days. <laughs> These things... These things are everywhere, and, and these are ripe for gospel communication. We don't believe in a malevolent force. We believe in a loving Heavenly Father. And you can see, what I'm trying to do in the book is trying to say, how, how you could start seeing, if you probe around, you look for these objects of worship, you'll be able to find ways in. You'll be able to build out the gospel from that. We laugh. And um, Richard Cunningham very kindly said about the book that this is a kind of a fun and accessible, and it is meant to be fun in that sense. But there is something serious, and I want to finish on this. This cultural analysis at this time is so crucial for us as Christians and our culture. 
Um, I've just come back from um, 10 days away with my wife. We have, we've had our 25th wedding anniversary. And um, uh, one of the books that I read, it's not great, it's not brilliant wedding anniversary material, is a, a biography, uh, an autobiography uh, of a lady called, a Czech lady called Susanna Rukova. Some of you may have heard of her. Uh, it's, the book's called A Hundred Miracles, and she was in the 50s and 60s um, and the 70s before she died. She's probably the greatest, one of the greatest harpsichord players that's ever lived. And uh, she was also the survivor of three Nazi concentration and slave labor camps. As I said, not great anniversary reading, but I enjoyed the book. And there's this amazing story, and it's just one miracle after another. That's why it's called 100 Miracles about her life and how she survived in, uh, in Auschwitz and in uh, Bergen-Belsen. Um, but there's this, uh, this, state, this um, time in 1944 where the SS know that they are losing, and they try to um, move out some of the prisoners from Auschwitz, and they move them to Hamburg uh, to deal with uh, oil pipelines. There's this terrible, demeaning manual work. But at that stage, um, the SS have... Um, uh, um, outsourced lodging and food to some of the major companies. So there's a slightly better treatment. Anyway, so uh, one day um, this teenage girl, because that's all she is, uh, uh, Susanna at that, she comes into this factory and she suddenly, after years and years, she's to be an incredible pianist, she suddenly hears Chopin for the first time in years. And she's so overwhelmed by it that she faints. And this is what she says. The civilian Vorarbeiter, or foreman, helped Mummy pick me up and carried me to his office to revive me. He was kind and tried to give me some water. While he stared into my face, waiting for me to come round, he expressed his surprise to my mother. Das sieht wie ein Mensch aus, he cried. That looks like a human. He went on to say that I resembled his own daughter and even looked like a little Madonna. She really is a human child. Here was a normal man with a normal family from a normal home, and every day he went to work with creatures he did not think of as people. My question is not simply, how does that happen in a culture, but how quickly that happens in a culture? Yeah. A few weeks ago, Roger Scruton was writing in The Spectator, and he said this, we in Britain are entering a dangerous social condition in which the direct expression of opinions that conflict or merely seem to conflict with a narrow set of orthodoxies is instantly punished by a band of self-appointed vigilantes. We are being cowed into abject conformity around a dubious set of official doctrines and told to adopt a worldview that we cannot examine for fear of being publicly humiliated by the censors. This worldview might lead to a new and liberated social order, or it might lead to the social and spiritual destruction of our country. How shall we know if we are too afraid to discuss it? Plugged in is about giving us the tools so that we're not afraid, giving us the tools to be able to discuss these things so that we can keep ourselves from idols and those in our care. So I really want people to take the book and to uh, delight in the God-given creation that we have, but also to realise that there are life, life and death issues in the way that we are forming or being deformed. And that's my challenger in, in the book in terms of taking every thought captive for Christ. Thank you. 
For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.